I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Twitter has been going through some changes. Since Elon Musk purchased the company, users, advertisers, and employees have left the app. Once banned accounts that shared incendiary or hate-filled posts have been replatformed, that's left millions of users wondering, is this the end of Twitter? We don't know what the future holds, but one thing is certain, Twitter as we've known it is gone. Rest in peace. Later this hour, a few prominent local tweeters will join us to talk about what's going on and where they are tuning, turning in light of recent events. But first, if you've been feeling like you can't keep up with all the education policy matters swirling in Tennessee, you're not alone. There's a lot going on at the state level. And here with the latest is WPLN education reporter Alexis Marshall. Lexi. Welcome back to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Really excited to have you back again. It's been a while. So, you know, you've been closely tracking decisions by state-level commissions. Let's start with the state's textbook commission. What have they been working on? Yeah, so they actually have a high-profile topic coming before them tomorrow at a specially called virtual meeting. Um, And earlier this year, the state legislature gave this commission some new oversight power on library materials. They've always kind of been in charge of reviewing textbooks. Now they're looking at what optional materials are available in school libraries. And they are in the early stages of starting to flex that muscle. Um, So tomorrow they'll be voting on something that's um, not super earth-shattering, It's non-binding, but it's essentially how school districts and schools should handle it when a parent or employee or student complains about a library book. Hmm. Um, They had an initial workshop a few weeks ago where most commission members seemed to agree that these matters um, ideally would be handled at a local level. Um, Although there was at least one member advocating for the commission to take a more direct role in determining what's appropriate for school libraries. Um, So here's an exchange between Lori Cardoza-Moore and former state lawmaker Mike Bell at that workshop. And you'll also briefly hear from Lee Houston, who's a school librarian on the commission. And I have seen the content. I just had a conversation with another parent last night on the book, The Hatchet. This is... The content is not only mature, mature or inappropriate, but the, it's, it is. It's vulgar. And it is this. Does this bring out the best for our students, for our children? Is this what we want to subject our children to? Is this Gary Paulson or Richard? Yeah. The Richard. Yeah, Lori, Lori, the legislation says issue guidance. It doesn't say define what materials are appropriate. It doesn't say define what maturity levels pursued or what or who may access the materials it doesn't say define those it says to give guidance to that's what the legislature said the commission is made up mostly of folks appointed by um, the state government and largely current or former education workers. But Cardoza Moore is a member of the general public representing Middle Tennessee. And outside of the commission, she unsuccessfully ran for office earlier this year um, and campaigned by saying that she would remove what she calls far left indoctrination from Tennessee's public schools. Mm. Yeah, some of this sounds technical or bureaucratic. What's the possible... Pardon me. What's the possible impact that schools, teachers or families could experience once this is all in place? So essentially, the vote tomorrow is is not expected to be 
um, anything like life altering. Um, they'll vote on that guidance that I mentioned that spells out how they want schools to handle challenges to books um, on that local level. And that includes forming a review committee. They'll pin down how many days that group should have to meet, read the book and render a decision. Um, and that's something that a lot of schools are already doing. Um, but next year, the body is going to be making decisions that will more directly impact families, uh, including creating an appeals process for books challenges that, that would take it basically directly up to the commission itself. Can you walk us through an example of what that may look like? Yeah. So there was a pretty publicized case here recently in Sumner County where a parent challenged the book A Place Inside of Me. It's a poem about a little boy navigating his feelings in the wake of a police shooting. Um, and community members, some of them claimed that illustrations in the book, which included drawings of a protest and the words Black Lives Matter, uh, they claimed that the, the illustrations in the book were offensive and violated state law, which prohibits certain teachings on race and inequality. Um, in the end, the board voted to uphold the local school's decision, which was to keep that book on the shelves. Uh, but getting back to the commission, they'll be creating a process where a parent, student or school employee could appeal that sort of a local decision to the commission, and then they would read that book and decide what action should be taken. Um, and it appears that they could have the final say. Mm. What did that dispute show us? Um, I think that that dispute showed us, uh, honestly, how divisive school library books have become in Tennessee. I mean, we have Another example just this morning from the Tennessean reporting that Wilson County School Board um, has voted to remove two books from its high school libraries um, in the district. And that's even though the review committee there had recommended that they be placed on a mature reading list, which would have required parents to give permission before those books could be checked out. So it really is. It's a hot issue in Tennessee. It can be very divisive. Mm. All right. We're going to turn to how the state oversees charter schools. This, this is a different commission, but it, it's been working in ways that kind of mirror the textbook commission. What have they been up to? So to, for starters, charter schools are schools that receive public funding but operate independently from the district. Um, and typically they submit an application to a local school board um, and that they determine whether they meet standards. Um, and then the Tennessee Public Charter School Commission can hear appeals from charter schools that have been rejected by those local school boards. So in the same way that the textbook commission will have the power to overturn local decisions about library books, this charter commission can override a local school board's decision about a charter school opening. So probably the most high profile example, you'll probably remember this, um, from this year was that there were charter schools affiliated with uh, Hillsdale College. Mm -hmm. That's a conservative school based out of Michigan that had plans to open dozens of charter schools in Tennessee and charters affiliated with Hillsdale appealed to that charter commission. They eventually withdrew, but it did put a big spotlight on this state commission. So what's happened with the most recent batch of charter applications? Um, for the most part, they did uphold local school board's decisions to reject um, the new charter schools. But when you look at Metro Nashville, it's a completely different story. Um, out of the 13 appeals, only three were approved and all three of them uh, were in Metro Nashville public schools. All right. So if three of the approved charters were in Metro schools, what has the district's reaction been? 
The school board chair, uh, Rachel Ann Elrod, was really frustrated. She issued a statement um, shortly after that last batch of appeals was voted on, saying that the commission was basically a, a rubber stamp. And that's something that they dispute, kind of pointing to the other schools that they upheld the rejections for. Um, but Elrod also said that those approvals um, untenably increase Metro Schools' fixed cost. Um, and in a recent school board meeting, she raised concerns about current operating charters, um, maybe not necessarily serving the children that they say they want to reach. Um, and that includes kids who are economically disadvantaged or who have disabilities. All right. I want to zoom out for a minute. A lot of people probably think of their schools as being very local and maybe they occasionally think some about their local school board and its decisions. But what we've been talking about here is all at the state level. What are you seeing about how these state commissions work and their impact across Tennessee? In general, these commissions kind of represent how the legislature is giving more authority to people at the state level. And that's caused some concerns for folks, especially since commission members are usually appointed and they aren't always as accessible as somebody who has been elected to office. You know, voters elect people to the school board because they trust the candidate to make decisions that align with their values. And when those decisions can be overturned by the state, that's that's going to ruffle some feathers. OK, so as as we mentioned, the textbook commission is supposed to meet again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But what else is on the horizon for these state policy groups? So next year, that textbook commission is slated to create its appeals process. And I think we could start to see some people starting to work through that process and get a first look at how that commission considers its role when regulating what books are appropriate for children in Tennessee. Um, and on the charter side of things, we'll also see another batch of charter schools applying um, two school districts to open. Um, just this week, the Tennessean reported that Hillsdale-affiliated charter operator um, has submitted letters of intent to open five charter schools in Tennessee. That's up from three this previous year. Um, and those would be in Rutherford, Madison, Murray, Montgomery, and Robertson counties. And the full applications for those charter schools um, will be submitted by February 1st, if all things go to plan. That's WPLN education reporter Alexis Marshall. Lexi, thanks for being here. And as always, thanks for your reporting. Thanks so much, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll attempt to answer the question, is Twitter on its last legs? Join the conversation. How do you feel about the recent changes? You know what to do. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When I first joined Twitter, I used it for a very specific purpose. I would live tweet jokes during presidential debates and primaries. Look, this was my lane and I tried to stay in it. Now, I did have friends and colleagues who were much more serious about how they use the app. For journalists, it can be a vital way to add more context to their stories or find stories in the first place. Love it or hate it, Twitter has impacted our lives and how we get our information. Now that billionaire Elon Musk purchased the company and instituted new 
policies. Thousands of users and workers have left the platform, and the future of the app hangs in the balance. So, what will Twitter become? Can it survive? My next guests are here to offer their, with no character limit, their views. Andrea Williams is a writer and author who has taken to Twitter to call for greater diversity and equity in our cultural institutions. And author Dave Delaney has written about networking and is an organizer in Nashville's tech community. I want to thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. So let me ask you both the big question. Is Twitter on its last legs, Andrea? Honestly, I don't know. That that is a really good question. I am not an expert. I cannot say. Um, it's been interesting to see, though. Um, I I don't. I wouldn't say my my Twitter follower count was terribly high, but I've noticed that it has gone down. Um, I've started engaging with it differently. I don't post as much yet. I don't want to walk away completely because it is that valuable. So I, I don't. I can't say that it's on its last leg. I know some. Other people in my position, friends, colleagues, other journalists that are like, yeah, I can't walk away either. So in that regard, it's like it feels like there's something left, um, but it's definitely a lot different for sure. All right. Well, Dave, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's on its last legs. I think uh, people are trying new places. They're experimenting with different uh, mediums and different places like Mastodon, for example. Uh, so it's interesting to see people moving on and trying new things. But I think as an early adopter in social media and social networking sites like Twitter, um, those of us that, that, you know, those of us like that like to play and try new things and new toys. So, you know, back when I started on Twitter in 07, we had other, uh, Twitter had competitors like Jaiku and Plurk and Pounce and all these other microblogging services mm. and microblogging wasn't even a word yet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I don't think it's going away necessarily, um, you know, but it's a it's a very expensive forty five billion dollar bet. Yes, that is. So what makes you think that it's going to be able to move past all of these problems it's experiencing? Well, you know, and and uh, certainly there are many opinions about Elon Musk uh, with uh, good reason. But I also do think that he happens to 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 be a smart fella. And he has uh, surrounded himself with very smart people, obviously. I mean, Tesla is, is, is incredible. You know, his, you know, sending rockets off to Mars. I mean, he's doing some pretty innovative things and he's not doing it by himself. So he's surrounding himself with talent. And I think that talent can be tapped to help him maybe rethink or reinvent or re <laughs> just, uh, just to help Twitter survive. Now, some would say he also chased talent away with some of these new policies that right. he's brought into the company. Right. So, and that's part of what I do with, with pe people and businesses is I help them not, you know, be nicer leaders. Mm -hmm. And, and he's a, yeah, he's, he's done a terrible job, uh, and, uh, at, at, um, basically creating a very fearful environment. And what happens then, I, under, I understand, especially in technology where layoffs do happen to have to happen sometimes, but, when you handle that incorrectly and you do it the wrong way, uh, you get turnover contagion taking place where people are scared for their jobs and they're jumping ship and leaving as soon as they can. And now there's like a mass exodus of talent at Twitter as a result of the way he's handled, uh, you know, his his role as a leader there. Yeah, for some, I'm sure it feels like going to work for Darth Vader. Now, you know, Andrea, over the past few weeks, a lot of people have left the app and, you know, they've moved to other social media platforms. 
Why do you think people are jumping ship? I think people are jumping ship because they don't think that Elon Musk is very smart. You know, he he has driven away a lot of talent that, you know, I mean, Twitter, like any platform has had its challenges, has had its problems and issues. But there is legitimate concern that with certain people leaving, it is less safe, that there will be uh, more harassment, more trolling, um, that your personal information can be hacked. And for some people, it's just not worth it. Um, You know, I think, you know, even in talking about Musk, Um, you know, buying the platform. For me, whatever we're still seeing this idea that maybe Twitter isn't dead just yet is less about what Elon Musk has done for Twitter and what he just happened to inherit because of the users that were already there, right? Um, You know, we talk about what Black Twitter means to this platform. And I know that a lot of people in that community feel like it is not easy to replicate that elsewhere. So it's kind of that, you know, the devil that you know is better than the devil that you don't know, right? That doesn't mean that, oh, he, we believe in him and he's doing these great things for the platform. It's can we realistically at this juncture, pick up what we've created here, pick up this community, all of these connections and plop them down somewhere else. I don't think people feel that they can yet. So yes, as some people are moving to other platforms, I think it's more of a wait and see game. Can, can Mastodon work out the, the kinks or the issues that people don't really love right now? Can we get closer to what Twitter created despite the flaws? that will have more people moving over there. But yeah, there's definitely con- a concern about, about what we have now that, that he has taken over. I've got a tweet to read here, but really quick. I, you both mentioned Mastodon. Hmm. What is that site? I've never heard of it. Mastodon is a new social network, and I use air quotes there. Um, you create a profile yourself um, on what's called a sur- on a, an instance or a server, uh, without getting too nerdy here, hmm. um, it is something relatively new. Now I've been on there like a several year or a couple years now, um, but it has become very popular because it it functions in a similar sort of manner as Twitter. Um, however, it's it's not owned by any one company. Anybody can create their own server, um, so it's much more of an open, uh, uh, accessible network. Um, you know, and and we talk. You know, we've you know, Macedon has been very popular lately. But I do encourage people. You know, and w- what we were talking about, or what I was talking about earlier, uh, the importance of understanding that social networks are rented land, right? Mm. So when you build a community, right. and and to your point too about picking up and trying to move your community elsewhere, if you can build your community on your website have them sign up for your email newsletter or an email of some sort. That way you have their contact information. So that should a social network go down or disappear. I mean, back in the early days, it was a joke because Twitter would go down all the time. Like it would, it would, it would happen constantly. Back in 08, my account was suspended on Twitter for a weekend from a mistake, Hmm. but it was this real wake up call realizing that all these people who I, uh, I consider friends on Twitter, I, had, I don't even know their real names, let alone their emails or mm-hmm. how to get a hold of them. And suddenly I was locked out. And it was this really sobering moment to realize like, whoa, hold on. You know, we can use these social networks and they can replicate and seem like real relationships. And they are in some extent what's going on in them. But it's so important to back it up and 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 to make sure that you're you're building these relationships where you can then follow up with them should they go away, these social networks. Mm-hmm. Now, don't forget to join the conversation. Tweet us. 
What else? At This Is Nashville. Now, we got this tweet from local sports journalist and previous This Is Nashville guest, Brian Baston. He writes, I'm only working in journalism now because of Twitter. It's by far the biggest audience for my work, and I've met some of the most amazing people because of it. In fact, without Twitter, I wouldn't cover the Preds, and I would have never have met Rose Gilbert, our producer, and maybe never heard of your show. Now, Brian, I love that. And Andrea, you're a journalist. Tell me, how does that yes. resonate? How does that resonate with you? I mean, completely and in every way, um, you know, I'm listening, you know, to Dave talk about, you know, the email list and all of that good stuff, which is great. And it's the stuff that my agent and my editors say about how to sell books, how to stay connected with people who enjoy reading your work and will support you in the future. It does not replace, though, that real time connection with people on Twitter that you maybe didn't know, you tweet something, they tweet something, you're meeting people for the first time. It's hard to replicate that with an email list. And yeah, I mean, if I think about the platforms that I write for regularly now, I think they can all be traced to social media. Um, you know, whether it's an editor reaching out to me, me connecting with an editor, um, I'm actually starting to do some work to help out with the porch. I met Susanna Feltz over Twitter. Um, it is just, it has been that the impact on my career has been immeasurable. And that's to say nothing of the work that I've been able to do, you know, as you mentioned in the intro for other communities, you know, out outside of my own, the advocacy work that I do for, for Black creatives in country music. I'm not in country music as an artist or a songwriter or anything like that, um, but I have been able to, to start conversations, to continue the conversations, to bring attention to much needed issues because of Twitter and not necessarily because of, okay, these are people that were already following me, you know, because I was writing about, you know, sports or whatever. Um, and so they signed up for an email list. This is something that was able to happen in real time, you know, as we see what's going on in the world around us and comment on it and have conversations with other people. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the future of Twitter with local tweeters Andrea Williams and Dave Delaney. Now, as we've mentioned a little bit, people have their opinions about Elon Musk, and some of his recent moves have, you know, got a lot of people worried about the future of the site. For instance, the content moderation team is responsible for moderating, mo monitoring hate speech and or misinformation that, that team is pretty much gone. All of this raises concern that the app will even become more of a nasty place and a toxic environment. Dave, so let me ask you, are you concerned about the lack of content moderation in Twitter? Yeah, I'm deeply concerned about this. Uh, I'm a big fan of the work uh, at the Center for Humane Tech that they're doing about, um, about misinformation and specifically disinformation as well. Um, not to mention trolls and, and all that. But yeah, no, I'm deeply concerned about this. Um, social networks like Twitter have been used to fuel hate and to fuel uh, anger. And uh, and yeah, no, I'm deeply I'm deeply concerned about it. And I wish there was a terms of service or not a terms of service, but I wish there was like a user manual, like a, like a 10 point like like uh, NPR has hmm. for for um, identifying misinformation. That's a very valuable resource. And for questioning the content you're reading and for realizing that if you're reading or hearing something that's causing you to be angry, taking a beat to look at the source and to realize, is this even a human I'm corresponding with, first of all? Because mm -hmm. there could be a bot that is designed 
to just spew hatred on Twitter. I mean, there, there is, I don't mean there could be, there are, there, there have been for years, but now it's not being policed as well at all, or if at all. And so these things are used to get you in, engaged and enraged. And, and if it bleeds, it leads, as, as we say in broadcasting, right? Mm. So yes, I'm deeply concerned about it. Um, I'm deeply concerned, not just for Twitter and for this, but for the fact that we need to question the information we're receiving and seeing, question the sources, do our own fact-checking, and refer back to valuable fact-checking sources so that we can better understand whether we're being fed garbage or not so that you know we can uh, we can be responsible citizens trolls bots and commenters oh my well <laughs> you know what about free apps the, the free speech absolutist viewpoint you know why not just let people battle it out in the marketplace of ideas because it's it is uh because it's a business uh you can't go into a, a crowded movie theater and yell fire that's not free speech mm. speech um, there's terms of service or there should be terms of service that, that make sure that people are, you know, behaving the way they should on, on whatever the platform is by, as dictated by the, the people that run that platform. And the fact that Twitter is, you know, backstepping all of this now, I mean, even, even now no longer managing any information regarding COVID, um, that alone is, is quite horrific. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. A Andrea, Andrea, what, what are your views? Yeah, no, I agree um, that, again, that goes back to this idea that, you know, Elon may be a smart guy. I, I'm not here to comment on that. We're talking specifically about about Twitter um, and his reign thus far. And yeah, it is definitely problematic on a lot of accounts for sure. All right. So, you know, the Internet and there's an big time issue of authenticity and trust. The famous blue check mark that's been used to verify if a user is actually who they claim to be. But, you know, now it could also mean that they're just a subscriber to Twitter Blue, which is offered for a payment of $8 a month. There have already been tweets that raised eyebrows. Andrea, how does this affect how people view the trustworthiness of the platform? Yeah, I, I don't know. In, in my, I will speak for me personally. Um, I don't know that it impacts trust. It feels like a money grab, like which I think it is, right? This idea that now you can pay for your blue check mark. I was not verified before. I'm not paying to get verified. Um, that's another issue of concern. It's like, okay, well, you know, what, how, how will my tweets now show up? You know, will they be valued in the algorithm? Will other people see my tweets and when I post because I don't have a blue check mark? Um, I think it just Again, because, you know, the people that had the, their verification still have it. And I guess you can click on the blue check mark to see if they were previously verified or if they paid for this verification. Um, so I don't know if it's a trustworthy thing as much as it just really looks like Elon is fail flailing and trying to make money however he can, as particularly as people start to leave the platform. Well, speaking about trustworthiness, there's a prominent local account that people really, really rely on, myself included. Nashville severe weather. We've invited them today, yes. but th they weren't available. But, you know, that account has, I know, has saved lives. Dave, what do you think is going to happen to them on the app? Well, as long as they, if they deleted their Twitter account, let's say, this is part of the reason why I'm, 
encouraging people that I speak with not to delete their Twitter accounts necessarily in protest of mm -hmm. whatever's going on now. The problem is if you delete your account, then someone else could take that username and they could buy a verification and make it look like them. And, and so that is a, a, a concern. But as far as Twitter, like, day by day. I've been following them since they got started on Twitter. Um, and, I, and that is a huge reason why I, I mean, I, it's amazing to me too, like, and I am verified. So I don't know whether I'll pay to continue my verification or not. Mm -hmm. I don't know what value that really serves. My kids think it's cool. <laughs> hey, <laughs> It might be the only thing. Street cred means a lot. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, Nashville severe weather. I mean, they, they're They do an amazing work and an amazing service, but I think, you know, as long as they stay doing what they're doing, um, whether they're verified or not, uh, you know, I have this. So it's interesting, the history of like Twitter and a lot of uh, social networking services, they, they don't, they've always done a terrible job at promoting their best uh, features. So for example, Twitter has Twitter lists, private lists and public lists. Um, and it's always been there, or it's been there for many years. And that's one of these features where I have a private list of media people that I trust mm -hmm. on Twitter. Actually, it's a public list. You can find it on my, at Dave Delaney, you can find the list. Um, but others subscribe to that list. They follow that list so they can see these trustworthy news sources who I've selected. Mm -hmm. um, and so whether they change their names or anything now or whether they're verified or not, it doesn't matter. They'll still be on that list is what I was getting at there. All right. So final question for you. With all this change, all this turmoil and upheaval, do you think Twitter is going to remain as it is or will it transform into something else? It's definitely going to transform into something else. I think, uh, I think Elon's already – I've read stories about, you know, um, into like a payment platform – into uh, more of a, a comprehensive media um, source or, or you know, medium sort of uh, aggregator, if you will. Um, I don't know what the what the future holds for Twitter, but I do believe that Elon may not be the last owner of Twitter. Like mm. Twitter may be sold to someone else with uh, with you know a better management style. I would hope. Um, so I don't think it's the end of Twitter. But I think in its current iteration, things are certainly uh, certainly evolving, and I think uh, I think it will grow into something something different, and God willing, something good. Dave Delaney is a longtime organizer in Nashville's tech community and author of the book New Business Networking. Dave, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Andrea Williams is going to stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the future of Twitter with a few prominent local tweeters. What has the app meant to you? How has it impacted your sense of community? For better or worse, tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. This hour, we've been discussing the uncertain future of Twitter since Elon Musk took over the company a few months ago. As of now, no one knows for sure what will happen to the platform. But what has Twitter meant to the local online community? 
How has it actually helped people in Nashville and Middle Tennessee? My next guests are active Twitter users and are here to offer their insights. I'd like to welcome singer-songwriter Adia Victoria, at Adia Victoria, personal chef Charles Hunter III, at The Salted Table, and entrepreneur Carlos Party at Cashville underscore ETC. I want to thank you all for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Hello. Thanks for having us. So, Charles, let's start with you. You, How'd you get started on Twitter? Oh, I randomly started an account, I don't know, maybe 2006 or so. Um, and it was just a way to spread my joy of cooking and my love of food when I started a food blog and then rolled it over into my personal chef business. Um, and it was just... I had no idea what I was doing, so I kind of abandoned it for a while. And then recently came back about probably three years ago, and then really kind of found my my footing in it. Now, tell me more about that, because I understand that during the pandemic, your post, your account, really kind of blew up, took off. Yeah, I was sharing all the stuff that I was at home cooking because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> all of my events, because we do in-home catering for clients and stuff, so all of my events kind of like canceled literally like within a week's time for like the year pretty much. Um, so I was just at home cooking, being creative, making things, sharing those recipes and those musings on Twitter some of them went viral for better or for worse. <laughs> hmm. um, and I just started to foster this community of people who really enjoyed what I was doing and the stories that I was telling about the food I was making. Um, and the following just kind of started to build. And I was like, oh, this is weird, but this is also really fun. Now, Carlos, you run a pretty popular local account, Cashville at Cashville underscore ETC. What led you what first led you to Twitter to get Cashville off the ground? Um, I was on Twitter, I guess, once Twitter started, um, I was being a little grown. Um, I was, <laughs> I had college friends sending me requests like, hey, you should get on these platforms, Twitter, Facebook, or whatever. Okay. Um, and I had my personal page. Um, but in 2016, I was just trying to figure out, like, trying to create some type of identity for my brand. Um, and I was like, why not start on Twitter? I think... Um, the community would be easy to cultivate because it's words and you can, you know, you could do your tweet pics here and there. But um, getting on, it was just more so trying to figure out how to communicate with natives. And then um, it started to, to cross over into transplants. So it started to kind of bridge this conversation between natives and transplants to kind of like communicate ideas, problems, and just kind of have some fun sometimes as well. So, yeah. Now, your business really took off because of Twitter, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it really did. Um, I guess just the, 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 the support of the community being able to kind of have a place to 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 express themselves and also myself being able to 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 express myself being a native from Nashville and just having some some of the same gripes that other citizens had um and they didn't have a platform to express themselves so it was just a way to be able to kind of hey I'm in this certain space today or I found this out and I want to communicate it I want to let people know um because I felt like uh not necessarily some of the media outlets weren't weren't doing a fair job of like including community. It was more so just whoever's coming in and buying up what and they kind of just get to say whatever they get to say and nobody else could have a pushback or a say so in anything. A place for the community to share information. Mm -hmm. Now, Adia, as a professional musician with a major label deal, do you feel like you have to keep active on Twitter? I feel like I'm certainly encouraged to keep active on Twitter. In fact, my Twitter account was started for me by my team 
as well as my Instagram. If if I had my way, I wouldn't be on any social media. Mm-hmm. But there is this extractive, extractive quality to it when you are a, a public figure that you are constantly, you know, um, pressured to, to feed the baby, to keep people's attention. And that for me has been one of the most disturbing aspects of what I do is that people, their attention has become so hijacked and, and shortened that I have to constantly remind them that, hey, I exist, mm-hmm. you know, rather than putting out a record every few years that people can sit with. I have to also be a comedian, also be a public commenter and, and just keep reminding people. It's like being forced into a conversation that you really don't want to be a part of, but it's a, it's how you eat in a lot of ways, which is been one of the downsides to what I do. Okay, so seeing that you would rather not be on it, mm-hmm. but you are, how do you like to use the pa- platform? I like to use the platform to, I guess, interrogate out loud a lot of the issues that I'm, I'm dealing with as an artist, as a Southern black woman. Um, a lot of my content on Twitter is about the deconstruction process of growing up in the Southern evangelical church. So I, I try and keep a lot of my uh, conversations and tweets geared towards that. And it's a way for me to not feel so isolated. It's a way for me to call out to people and have them respond back with their own um, experiences and growing up in purity culture and Christianity and, and the ways that the blues is, has been a bomb for me, um, has been a lifesaver. And so that's what I, I try to keep my, my Twitter um, geared towards because there's so much mess and noise out there that I try and keep it specific as possible as I can for me and my followers. Mm. Now, Charles, as you mentioned, you use Twitter to expand your professional network during the pandemic. Do you feel like you would have found the same support without Twitter? Mm, I probably could have on other platforms because I feel like I've kind of cultivated similar communities on Instagram and Facebook, similar people who, similar like-minded people who enjoy cooking, food, creative things. Um, But Twitter is its own, its own beast. Um, Hmm. And so the way I interact with people on there is more instantaneous. Like you don't really hang around the Instagram comment section too much, but like Twitter is that instantaneous, instant gratification, quick responses. Um, people are very receptive to imagery over there. I almost tweet Twitter like Instagram by sharing a lot of photos and things that I'm doing and step-by-step processes to really engage that audience. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about what Twitter has meant for our local community with our guests, singer Adia Victoria, personal chef Charles Hunter III, and entrepreneur Carlos Party. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville, and we just got a tweet at This Is Nashville from someone who says, quote, I use Twitter to read news from independent journalists, to hear jokes, and to post photos of wildflowers I take out in the forests around Nashville. And at Peter Robinson tweets, I still use Twitter to communicate with Metro officials, get local information, and connect with cool Nashvillians on topics that interests me. So I, I want to ask all of you, that, that's just, can this kind of community building, can it happen elsewhere, or is it truly only unique to Twitter? Carlos? Um, I think it's the characters, the, 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 the being able to communicate what you want to in, like you said, in instant gratification in a sense, um, you're able to communicate with artists. Like 
you're able to communicate with chefs, you're able to communicate with elected officials, you're 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 it's easy, it's it's um it's instant. Um even the character part, I think being able to dis- describe how you're feeling in the the moment or describe how you just want to talk about whatever the case may be. Um I feel like other platforms don't have the accessibility because with Instagram, you have to post pictures and you have to post comments underneath. And Facebook is it's like the wild, wild west. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Twitter is, it, it, like he says, his own beast because you can just honestly just interact with your, your, your community very fast. And, and, and also about what you, you know, your topics are, it can transcend to a whole nother community or it could go to another timeline or it could end up in a whole nother country just by whatever your topic is. Adia. I think that Twitter is, I'm listening to the ways that we're using it. And, you know, the three of us, it, a lot of our Twitter use is, is rooted in the local, is rooted in the specific. And I think the trouble happens when people are able to broadcast across, you know, the world, humanity, I think that's where a lot of people begin losing their minds. Um, and I, I like that Twitter can be instantaneous, but I also think that something is lost because of that, because there is such a premium placed on speed and, and skimming. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I worry that human beings were, were not, we have not adapted to the point where we're able to take in this much information and take in this much noise. So at the same time, you are able to reach out to your local community, but at the same time, it's like, what do people remember? Like, I don't remember the tweets that I liked from yesterday. Mm-hmm. I, I, so it seems to be this ongoing amnesia and I would be interested in seeing Twitter become something more concrete, something more local that we're able to build communities that we can take offline from Twitter into the physical, um, world and, and build local community from that. Now, there's something that you mentioned there that, you know, we take it offline and we go IRL in real life, as, sure. you know, uh, a lot of people talk about. And because online there's trolls, mm-hmm. they're alive and well, they're even more emboldened now because these because of these new policies on Twitter or the lack thereof. You, Adia, you're a celebrity and you have a huge presence. Do you worry about harassment on the platform from trolls that maybe not wouldn't happen in person? No, I've dealt with trolls my entire life. IRL trolls, trolls on the school bus. You know, I look at those people as they're they're lonely. They're starved for a human connection. And I think that Twitter reflects the people that use it. I think that Elon knows that. And he's just looking for attention from from us. That's how, you know, Twitter is able to stay on is if we're on. But I'm not I'm not really I'm not really worried about people that that show up and and have, you know, the spit vitriol at me. That's a reflection of them. That's a them problem. Mm -hmm. And I will engage them as a human being. You know, I don't absorb that. I put that back on them. It's like, you want to call me the N word? Something about you felt like the N word that you wanted to spit that back at me. So let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't come for me unless you really want that spotlight, you know, Um, because it ain't going to break my stride. Uh, writer Andrea Williams is still with us, and she touched on this earlier. Andre- Andrea, how do we fight against the energy that trolls bring to social media? Um, yeah, I think Adia makes a really good point. I don't know sometimes um, if it's even worth fighting, but I will say in my experience, when people have said things to me that were that were out of pocket, it's a great way to to engage to the larger engage with the larger community and to share some of these issues that that go on. A lot of times, you know, if I'm thinking particularly about um, some of the work that I've done in country music, 
when I say, if I were just to make a blanket statement and say, okay, country music is racist and here are the issues that black people are facing within the genre, I'd immediately get a lot of pushback from people who are like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not 1965. I'm not, I've never seen that. Um, and then when I have these personal interactions, when people show up in my mentions, um, that's an opportunity, not because I necessarily want to platform whatever hate they're spewing, but to show people, this is what it's really like, mm. you know, it becomes an education tool so that people understand that because you don't see it, because you're not experiencing, it doesn't mean that it's not happening. And if you legitimately care about making this space better for everyone, here's who we have to engage with. This might be your homeboy. You might look at that person and be like, oh, we're mutuals. How did that happen? Mm. And so now we can do the, the the more broad work than if we just, you know, talked about our personal experiences. Here, here's a tweet we got from on the topic of harassment. Quote, as a trans person, I've seen an undeniable surge in hateful abuse since Musk has begun unbanning accounts that target trans people for harassment. Now, how does that resonate with y'all? The fact that some of these accounts, I mean, I know there was a lot of talk to see if former President Trump was going to be allowed back onto Twitter. Um, there's been a lot of vitriol out there. People are afraid of some of these accounts coming back, espousing these very toxic views you know, Charles, how do you feel about that, that these accounts are being invited back into the platform? Um, I think it's not a great thing, first of all, for f foremost, but I feel like you have to find ways within any social media platform to protect your sanity. You have to create a safe space for yourself um, because everybody has access to you on these social media platforms. So I think you have to think about your perspective on them. And I know like for myself, I've created and fostered community around food and around things that are creative and like-minded people are in that space. And then every now and again, when the trolls roll in, I just figure out a way to deal with them, whether it be you block them or you mute them, or you're like, you know what, I'm just going to ignore you. You're not going to get that spotlight from me today so other people can see your, your idiotic thoughts or whatever it is that you're spewing on this social media platform to this complete stranger that you don't know. Um, so I think it's all about your perspective um, versus feeling like you have to walk into that space and go to war every day because those people aren't going to go anywhere mm -hmm. and they're just going to come in by larger numbers as time goes on. You know, this might be a really grand philosophical question, but what does this say? It's a social media, Twitter, any other platform is a reflection of where society currently is. Mm -hmm. People are being relatively true, particularly when they spit vitriol. Carlos, what does this tell you about society and our priorities, particularly how we treat community. <laughs> um, it feels like we're in like an episode of like Black Mirror sometimes, mm -hmm. just as far as like just occupying the space on Twitter. Um, I mean, it's a really hard question because some half the time you don't even know who you're talking to and you don't honestly even know their views or who they are other than what they've tweeted you in that moment. And it could take away it could take away your energy or it could either you know spark some 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 grand idea um it also just just creates this this um playing field of like your emotions as well like how are you going to communicate things that 
that people say on Twitter, like, I, what is your your boundaries in a sense? Like, how are you going to communicate with your following after this? Because a lot of the times they want you to, to spew back. They want you to kind of go back at, at the person or they want you to clarify things and it puts you in a light of like, damn, is it, I mean, is it my job to really clarify something to, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, this is an open space for all, but is it really left upon me once I leave this app to, like, clarify what happened or to 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 make a statement because such and such did this or you took part in this or you like this or you retweeted this so it just <laughs> I don't know social media puts this like hold on a lot of us sometimes then and we can't get off of it's like a in a sense like a monkey on your back to where it's like okay what are you gonna do next like are you ready for the for the for the next mm-hmm. next wave of things? So and it's almost like, do you have a yeah? You know, almost some people have an obligation to quote unquote clap back on social media. Do you? I don't think it's any small coincidence that we're seeing the rise of um, the predominance of social media at this stage of capitalism, where where the the availability of, of public spaces has dwindled, have been bought up and by corporations and disappeared. Like there's no third space where people are able to go. Um, that's not home. That's not the office where they're able to find clubs and common interests that aren't predicated upon you being able to pay entry. So people have nowhere to go anymore. And I think that you're seeing the reason why you're seeing people addicted to their phones and screen time rising and this anxiety and this dread and this just, you know, chaos that that Twitter has become and that Elon Musk is fomenting and, and capitalizing off is going hand in hand with the available availability of, of public spaces for people to go to build and foster community. And I think that as capitalism becomes more extreme and becomes more predatory, the only place left to go to socialize with people, to exchange ideas, is under this surveillance system of, of technology, which is not real life. And the more that that happens, the less people are able to even appreciate who's sitting across the table from them. You know, you go to a restaurant now with people on a date and they're both on their phones. So I think it's taking us out of ourselves, taking us out of our life and putting us into this like surveillance system where we lose our humanity. And if I had to give up the 20,000 people that follow me on Twitter um, for more public funding, more public space, more public mental health care, I would give it up in a heartbeat because it's just not, it's not worth it. I want to thank my guests, singer, songwriter, Adia Victoria, Chef Charles Hunter III, Carlos Party of Cashville, and journalist Andrea Williams. I want to thank you all for this discussion and really appreciate you all being here today. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we'll explore the history and importance of black churches in Middle Tennessee. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, Laurent and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be really good to each other.